I have to ask, who is Marcus Graham? Marcus Graham is Eddie Murphy's character in the 1992 film Boomerang. So what does he have to do with today's episode? Listen in. Welcome to Back of Napkin, the podcast created in honor of that great tradition of big ideas doodled on little pieces of paper, where we here at Fleischman Hillard are passing a napkin to top marketing leaders who will sketch out what's on their minds about the topics that are on ours. More than 10 years ago, I met a sharp, young account executive. His name was Lincoln Stevens. He was the only African-American male account executive at the agency. About that same time, our country's first African-American president was elected with the famously branded message of change we can believe in. Lincoln embraced the president's words and started the Marcus Graham Project. The vision? Connect and collaborate to create a long-term solution to widening the pool of diverse talent in our industry. Likewise, brands began to assess their own approach to diversity and inclusion and created programs and philosophies to address the issues. And while much progress has been made in the last 10 years, questions still remain. Are brands doing it right? Or are they using yesterday's playbook on diversity and inclusion while the world itself changes once again? And who better to help answer those questions than Lincoln himself? Welcome, and so good to see you again. Good to see you. Hello. How are you? Hi. Great. So about that first question, Lincoln, what has changed in the diversity and inclusion brand playbook in the last 10 years, and has it changed for good? I think the the change that we've been seeing now um, has been about more, more conversations, but that also really just means more talk, um, less action, less uh, substantive change. Um, I'm holding here with me a book that was made 50 year, published 50 years ago this year. Um, a mentor of mine wrote it. His name is Bill Sharp. He's actually someone who created a program like uh, ours, uh, like the Marcus Graham Project, um, more than 50 years ago. Uh, this book is called How to Be Black and Get a Job in the Advertising Business Anyway. Hmm. It's an original copy. I won't give it to you. Um, and when I read the book, at least hold it, you can hold it. (laughs) When I read the book, uh, it reads like 2019. So not only has not much change 10 years ago from 10 years ago, but not much has really, really substantively changed, uh, since, uh, 1969. So in, in that book, one of the things he points out is in advertising uh, at that time, so he wrote it in 68, published in 69. At that time, there were 3% African-Americans working in the advertising business. Now we're at 5.6% from 50 years ago. Wow. So I can't talk about the change over 10 years without talking about the change from some of these early conversations from 50 years ago. Understandably so. How do you think that brands um, reflected diversity and inclusion after Obama was elected? You know, I think that there's there's two schools of thought after Obama was elected. I think there is a school of thought that once Obama was elected, that oh, the country's good now. We have our first black president. Everything's good. We don't need to do anything. We're we're good. 
And really what, what some companies were actually saying was that you all, black people, you're good now. You have your president. You finally made it. We don't need to put more money uh, against specifically African-American consumer marketing, um, which in turn has made a lot of publications and media vehicles that have traditionally been a voice for the African-American community lose ad revenue. And, you know, if you go and pick up some issues of certain magazines, you'll see them being so very thin. And obviously, okay, it's print magazine. We we can go on and on about... <laughs> it's print dead. Is print dead <laughs> right. or magazine's dead. But no, I mean, I think Vogue is pretty, it's pretty, still pretty thick, you know? Um, but when you have so... So few choices of uh, both magazines, TV, um, radio as well that ha that are still some great ways of reaching the African American consumer market that aren't receiving you know some of the same ad dollars. Um, it's it's a challenge, right? So programs like BT for years did a college tour, uh, went to a lot of different historically black colleges and universities. Well. If I'm all of these brands that at one point in time had money to put against that, and if I no longer really have an actual budget for African-American consumer marketing, then there's not a place to go support that. So what happens? That program goes away. What happens? Students are not exposed to the companies that were coming and doing college visits. So what happens from that? Students then don't know that there are certain jobs that are out there. So what happens to that? Unemployment rates continue to stay where they are or worsen right so there so when when obama was elected it was great but there were a lot of things that have happened that haven't been so great because because of the ooh now we've made it mentality that uh that I, i've seen happen so let me give our listeners some context about about who you are you're the CEO and co-founder of the Marcus Graham Project. You've been named Advertising Ages Top 40 Marketing Leaders Under 40. Ebony Magazines named you Top Entrepreneur Under 34. And now you're the newly appointed campus director of one of WeWork's Flatiron schools. So as we talked about, um, Obama, just briefly, when, you, when he was elected, you actually described having had a, a moment of divine inspiration, um, which caused you to actually leave the traditional agency life and start up the Marcus Graham project. So as you did that, and I think you touched a little bit on the, some of the statistics there a, a bit ago, but what industry need were you specifically looking to serve when you, when you kind of took that leap of faith? Yeah. It, so it kind of goes back to what I was mentioning a little bit earlier to the BT college tour. Uh, it was exposure. What I realized when I was working um, at the agency that we worked with, uh, and I had a friend that came to visit me um, at, somewhat after hours. I was I was working late. Um, came, we were we were very young. Very very. Young. I, very <laughs> I don't know about you. I still have to work late. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Work never stops. Um, and he came to visit, and he didn't realize what I did. You know, there's no take your friends to work day. You know, I think we should start that. A take your friends to work day so they can see what you actually do. Because I think when we explain it, you know, they kind of get it. But it's like, no, 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 no. 
all these steps in between. So we were solving solving exposure and awareness to make sure that people were knew that careers existed in this field and knew how to get in into them. It was the same thing that Bill Sharp did over 50 years ago is cr create something that drew awareness and an immediate touch point to the exposure of the business, not just, not a lunch and learn, but work like really working, doing the actual, doing the actual work. Creating that pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. And creating, and not just the pipeline, but creating a community of mentors and mentees. So one of the things that when I asked Mr. Sharp, what he did not do or wish that he would have done, he said, I wish that, you know, we would have put mentors around the students that were in our program because we just put them out into the workforce and they didn't have any support for them to grow in their careers. And I, I think that's a thing that we do a pretty bad job in, 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 in our field anyhow is, is the mentorship piece um, intention, intentionally um, but um, or unintentionally. We do a bad job at it. Um, but we can be more intentional about about that because people need mentors. I don't know where I would have been without without several mentors. Right. Actually, I, I do know where I would have been. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, even with diversity and inclusion being a priority for businesses these days, the numbers, as you mentioned, are disproportionate, and there seems to be just you know sprinkles of minorities represented. Um, kind of we're touching on what's causing some of the um, disproportion, but can you expand a little bit on that? So when I go and talk to a lot of colleges or high schools or different community groups, I always say, raise your hand if you've ever watched television before. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a TV commercial before. All hands are up at this point in time. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a Nike commercial before. All hands are up, but still at this time. Raise your hand if you know the name of one of Nike's advertising agencies, every single hand always goes down uh, from students, staff, faculty, if there are any parents in the room, advisors, all hands are down. So what that tells me, especially since um, uh, most ethnic minority groups, specifically African-American and, and Hispanic groups, over-index in media consumption uh, and digital consumption overall. but So that's telling me is that people are using it um, but don't know the, the, the business behind it. You know, when you watch a commercial on TV, you know, we just had the Super Bowl, there are no credits. <laughs> so, you know, I was fascinated as a kid looking at the credits of TV shows and films. Um, and saying, oh, somebody's doing, what are those things? Mom, Dad, what are those things? Oh, these are all the people that made those things, this show, come to life. So we don't see that. And when, whenever we see that, whenever people get credit for the work that they're doing as individuals, it's usually an industry-only industry framework. So if I don't know that can exist, how would I, get, how would I point to know the people doing that work if I don't know that it I don't know that it exists in the first place. I don't know that the industry exists. So then how would I get to a can or how would I get to a four A's or a PRSA to understand that these are the people doing doing the work or the trade publications if I have no idea that this is an actual industry of, of employment? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's 
let's shift the conversation a little bit about brands specifically and um, some of the work that are that's being done by brands today and whether or not it is authentically reflecting um, a, you know the, this notion of diversity and inclusion. I have a few brands that I think have been doing it well and I'm very well aware of some brands who have um, stepped in it. I'm curious to hear from your point of view who do you admire most and who do you think um, is, is doing it best? So one brand I mean this I mentioned it a second ago. Um, and it's probably to be expected. I think one brand that has been doing it well for some time is Nike. I mean, when you think about a brand making such a statement uh, as they did with, um, you know, featuring Colin Kaepernick um, um, in this time of controversy based upon his his decision of protest, I think that's one brand that said, hey, we recognize what our, what our fans and his fans and what our fans and consumers and customers um, believe in and want and want us to have a stance on. And we're going to, uh, and we're going to make that stance and make it really, really um, clear. Um, but they also um, have been understanding um, the African-American audience for a long time. I mean, one could argue particularly, you know, with owning the Jordan brand, one could argue that their business was built on the consumer uh, purchasing power of African-Americans uh, and the conspicuousness of that. Um, um, someone could argue with that. And, and, and so they have to know it. They have to get it. Um, they can't be tone, tone deaf to it. Uh, it um, so they're, they're one brand that I think has, has gotten, it, gotten it right. And, you know, I, I, I was having a discussion with some friends about this not too long ago. Other than that, I really can't think of very many others, to be honest with you, um, that that are really giving you know true resonant, you know sort of remarks. I think that uh, Procter and Gamble is a company that is doing uh, some 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 great work, particularly as it relates to African American audience with the uh, Can Award winning the talk the talk uh, series. But that was born out of um, that was born out of an initiative that they had called My Black Is Beautiful, that was uh, has, has been around for you know nearly fifteen years, and they had the time to understand the voices and the needs of a community and had a relationship. So I think you know creating that relationship and knowing and then being able to make a statement as a as a one of the globe's largest advertisers um, was bold but necessary. I agree. Props go to Nadal for writing that beautiful script. Um, Amazing young copywriter. Um, One that I will point to, I I think the beauty brands are actually doing a a really nice job. You probably don't follow as many beauty brands (laughs) as I do. You'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one that comes to mind is Beauty FX and they did, um, this is about a year and a half old, but they did a nude is not beige Mm. campaign which i just thought was really beautiful and smart um and recognizing that you know skin color is not um all the same and you can't um, whitewash it and so i just thought that that was a an excellent campaign um but then they're the ones that are bad um would you like to to go down that path with me sure i mean when so the thing that came immediately to my mind when you talked about 
uh, uh, Skin is Not Beige, is uh, a campaign that, that came out. Um, why am I now completely flaking on the brand? Nivea. They had a campaign and it had a woman. Um, she was a white woman and her back was turned, her hair was long, and the copy said, uh, white is pure. How many people get to see these things from the client to the agency to even just think about, I get, I get it. The lotion is white. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're in the Bible, we'll just say, you know, you know, Jesus' blood washed our sins white as snow. I get it. I get any reference to white. But when we're in a point in our society where we're really seeing so much hatred that to be that tone deaf to, to, for you to not see that something that says white is pure could be somewhat offensive. Like, who do you have work? Who do you have working with you and who do you have approving this? Um, or are you so busy and it's, and it's not anywhere in the frame of your mind? to have the consideration of it, right? That, that it's, um, that's bad. So, I mean, I think that, so that's one. I mean, I think there's, there's others, and one in particular that has gotten over the years, a lot of talk, talk has been talked about a lot, rather, uh, is Pepsi. One of the Jenner sisters was in, in it, and the thing that stuck out to me the most about the Pepsi ad um, that came out when she was essentially fighting social justice with a can is uh, a tweet that came out from uh, uh, Mar Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, Bernice King, and she posted a picture of her father uh, being harassed, beaten up by police, and she said, only if my father had the power of a, of a Pepsi. Wow. And when that's when you know you've, you've really messed up because and it's not it wasn't just that she spoke up about that and posted that picture it was the it was also uh and it wasn't widely known because it was an employee engagement event but she had just spoken at uh at uh, uh the 50th anniversary of PepsiCo's celebration of Black History Month the previous year so oof <laughs> you know, and so again, who from who from the Jenner family, and mind you, all of you date black men, right? So who from the Jenner family, from Pepsi's content studio, um, and I can't say agency because it that an agency didn't work on that. It came from their content studio internally, um, but for whoever else had the chance to look at it. All those people that looked at it, just the script, forget before airing, just, just the script in and of itself, because you did go shoot it, right? <laughs> like you did spend a lot of money going to shoot this, right? How many people were in a room and didn't say anything? Um, and was there any representation in the room? And, and if, let's say there was, let's say that, let's say that 50% of the room were people of color that understood this and you don't have to be a person of color to understand how tone deaf that was but let's say that you were were you empowered enough to say something mm, good question i mean that brings up a i think super valid point and it's the obviously the the pepsi thing is a issue in and of itself but i'm curious if 
the lack of internal diversity within agencies is in many ways the cause for this, as you call it, tone deafness? I think, I think, so I think, I think, yes, that's definitely, that's definitely uh, one challenge. It's the lack of representation for sure. But then also if you had representation again, you would also need people to have a voice and, voice and a seat at the table. So you can have people working at the agency, but if they're not in a if they're not at the table or in the room, then does it really does it matter if they're not if they're in the room but don't have the ability to uh, speak up um, um, for whatever reason that is, or if they did did speak up and it becomes something that I mean I've known people that have gotten fired for speaking up on things, right? So um, when those things happen, you know, do you are you really setting the culture of the company up? right way another thing is even if you don't have the representation like just more awareness of just more self-awareness more awareness around what's going on in the world and i think that that you know we because we're such a sort of tribal community we tend to be in our bubbles i know that i have to do much a much better job of staying getting out of my own bubble in my community i live South Dallas in a predominantly African American community. I go to a black church. I'm black. My family's black. Most of my friends are African American, um, and I have to be intentional to make sure, outside of work, um, to interact with other communities. Particularly when you live in a very segregated city, as we do, I have to actually make sure I go to Kalachanjis and go and and you know, experience the Hare Krishna community. I have to make sure that my son, you know, is, has exposure to a lot of other communities. And I don't, I think just as much as I do that, I think other people should do that to make themselves more aware and to build real relationships. Then you would know, it would be somewhat on the top of your mind if you had real relationships, not just like your one black friend from college, you know, but, right. but like real relationships. Uh, your point about having a voice is um, really a, a powerful statement. I think that there are business implications for not allowing people to have voices. And then there's this desire for companies and really lean into diversity and inclusion. And there's a clear tension if there's lack of authenticity, if you're leaning into the, to the initiative, but not allowing for the voices to be heard, there's some issues. And I think the examples that you brought up, both the good and the bad, um, were all fueled large, in large part by social media. And there's now this this world where social has given way to organizations being e exposed from the, the inside. And when their internal actions don't map to their external image, a brand's reputation can be tarnished, as in the case with Pepsi. So talk to me a bit about the importance of the connection between diversity, inclusion, and in the workplace and how it translates to the marketplace. For sure. I mean, I think because of social, obviously, we have much more a clear cut understanding of what's going on and a clear ability. You, you know, do you, I don't know if you remember the days where if you if you wanted to like call a company or a brand like there's an 800 number that you can call. And there still <laughs> yes. is. Or like you look at a box of cereal and there's like an 800 number that you can call. Well, like Twitter is that 800 number now. Mm -hmm. And people, communities, you know, the, you know, black Twitter right, will come for you, <laughs> like if you <laughs> if you make a mistake, right? Um, and so while that gives a, while the challenges that exist 
and that people can be vocal about on Twitter have implications that brands have to respond to because now you're in crisis communications mode and everything like that. I don't think it will be until you actually, like I don't actually know if Pepsi actually really took a, a hit in, in share off of that, right? I still see black people drinking Pepsi, right? <laughs> right. I still see when I'm at the mall, I still see black people going to H&M. I still see, you know, um, Dove and different products being being consumed. So I don't think until it actually takes a hit in the pocket that it's actually going to make people really, really substantively change what's going on. So, so because you are not substantively changing a work environment uh, and culture or percentage or numbers or anything like that, um, then you kind of just put a spin on it and apologize and do the typical statement of apology and then time goes on and then is business as usual. So, you know, one in, and in comparison, like the LGBTQ community does a much better job um, at when, when a brand is, uh, uh, makes a misstep, the brands feel it in their pocket. And I don't know as much for uh, communities of color that they feel it that much as much as they do when uh, it's affected either by the LGBTQ community or for women, um, obviously being huge decision makers and, and purchase decisions, um, they'll feel it. If you, if you, if you offend uh, uh, women, you'll feel it much harder. Um, but even there, I mean, look how long Look how long GoDaddy got away with having such a misogynistic and sexist uh, uh, piece of advertising. And I don't know to the extent how much they actually felt it in their pocket, right? Well, good point. I do think that today we're seeing, or at least the <laughs> the narrative and um, is saying that consumers um, will want to buy from you and employees will want to work for you if your actions are reflected both internally and externally with your brand actions. So perhaps Nike is the best example of that in recent in recent times. But um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this all unfolds, especially as employees become kind of a brand in and of themselves. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Speaking of employees, I asked three of my colleagues who have a lot of heart for diversity and inclusion to consider the topic. I thought we'd shake it up a bit and let them ask you a few questions if you're game. Sounds good. Okay, amazing. So I'll pass it off to Ale. Awesome. Hi, Lincoln. Hi. My name is Alejandra Suarez. And so you talked a lot about representation in the industry and also like talent getting into the door. But once they are um, working at an agency, what's your advice for retaining them and keeping them engaged throughout their careers? Um, I think first making sure that... Um, that there's not an inherent bias in the culture that would eliminate their participation in even in conversation. I use an I'll use an example um, uh, from my own experience early on in my career. I remember working and going out to lunch with a group of colleagues, and at lunch everyone was talking about Desperate Housewives. 
and I had nothing to contribute to this conversation. Um, I later started watching Desert Housewives, and I thought it was an awesome show, but I had nothing at that time to contribute because I didn't watch it. And I remember someone saying to me, um, I noticed at lunch that you were really quiet and weren't really engaged. Are you happy working here? That microaggression of not... So, A, you weren't talking about anything that I related to. Also, I'm not a huge, huge sports fan either. So I could be in a room and people could be talking about um, talking about the Super Bowl in 1983. I have nothing to contribute to that. I barely remember what happened yesterday, right? So any, so I think it's about creating a culture where you're mindful of uh, looking at how people are engaged in in conversations or in in the work. Are you are people going to happy hour? There's some people that might not want to go to happy hour every night with the group of guys. You know what I'm saying? Um, so making sure that that the biases that are implicit in the way that people just actually work from a social perspective. Because let's face it, there's the work and the, how good you do your job. And then there's the social side of the business that informs who you're going to be hanging out with, which then informs the inside of what's going on at the company which then informs if you're not on the inside, maybe you're not going to know about that meeting that's going to happen on Thursday um, to uh, either make sure that you're invited or be included because you might have perspective to be added to it. And that comes from like our little groups of fraternities or sororities that we typically make inside of our companies. Um, and so I think the one of the ways is to really take a look and say, hey, do we have this existing and making sure that if you're, you know, in a meeting, look around the room, and if there is some something of any uh, uh, point of difference, um, uh, whether it's race or like background economically or anything, if that if there's no representation in that room, like like interrogate why that's there, right? So that will so that'll get you to understand what your culture is about. Specifically on on the retention piece, I think it's not treating them and I'm putting air quotes in, treating them as a them because it's we. And I think so 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 often when we categorize uh people of color or categorize minor underrepresented groups uh, into, you know, a genre like music, then, then we're examining them based upon that genre, right? So it's one thing I always love when Erica Badu talks about, you know, not liking being called the queen of neo soul. She's like, I make music, right? So when we continually look at people through only through the lens of their color or gender uh, or sexual preference or anything like that, that we keep them in that box. And and trust me, they and we feel it when we're putting it, when we're put in that box and it makes you, un- and it makes you uncomfortable. I think not making every 
black person or gay person or Hispanic person be the spokesperson for that community in a in a uh, in a place also becomes challenging. Um, and those are those are the points where people start getting like adding notches on reasons why they want to leave. And you and most managers and people at companies don't have no clue that I'm just keeping a tally of all of the reasons why I don't want to stay here. And it probably happened in day one when I got into orientation and saw that I'm the only person that looked like me. And it happened on it had happened on day 21 when I was at lunch and you said I was unengaged because I wasn't talking about what you were talking about. I've got two points now in a month of why I'm ready to leave and I just got here. So I think companies should be, and 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 companies, especially in, in in our field, should understand that there are many more choices that we have to 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 work, and we already not are not wanting to stay in jobs as long as as we have before. So, you know, by the time I've gotten I've, you know, gotten to that fifth point and I've crossed over the four lines, you know, you might have lost me. I might I may not go actively looking for a job for a few months after that. But you lost me when I crossed that, when I crossed out that. And someone will line. come knocking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Especially if I'm good, <laughs> and if word gets around town that I'm good, it's easier for me to it's easier for me to leave. Yeah. Thank you. Um, hi, Lincoln. Uh, my name is Seth Minix, and I actually sit on the intersection um, between the LGBTQ plus community and the African American community. Um, and a lot of times, like you said previously, uh, our groups are uh, tapped as the voice of the entire community. Um, how uh, do you avoid, um, or we should avoid, uh, tokenizing our diverse talent? So I, I think that's an interesting question. How do you avoid tokenizing our diverse talent? Uh, I have a three-year-old son, and he often finds coins um, and there's a man actually at church that gives him a, a, I don't know why this man carries around a whole dollar coin, you know, but when he sees my son, he'll give him a dollar, he gives him a dollar coin. Now that coin was special to my son when he got the first one. It was more special to him when he got a second one. When he continues to get them, they become less special because there's now he has more coins, right? In a similar fashion, I think you are not a token when there's when there are more people, right? So yeah, like you could be a you could be a one person could be a token hire off of like a diversity and inclusion initiative, and it's like oh we finally got one, we finally got us a good black person here, um, and and so the more that that's not uh, that that is the norm of of making sure that that your that companies are hiring to the way the world looks, your the the tokenization becomes less frequent because you can't just point to that one person and then point to that one person and continually prop them up as as that. You're not gonna put that one person in front and center in your in the company photo that's gonna be on the website or have you because the website will look like uh, a a beautiful canvas and a beautiful 
rainbow of people of all different complexions and haircuts and hairstyles and tattoos and nose rings and all this type of thing, right? Um, so when that becomes the norm, because your hiring pra- hiring practices are not making diversity hires, but they're making hires to uh, uh, make the company reflect the world, then there won't be uh, as much tokenism that currently exists in so many ways. That was a great answer. And that also goes along with what you said about having more diverse talent in leadership positions to be able to speak to that and make sure that that doesn't happen. Exactly. And then in, in leadership positions um, that aren't just diversity roles, right? Leadership positions that are decision makers, leadership positions that affect the the budgets, leadership positions if you're at an agency where uh, where you can have FaceTime with the most senior client that you have there, leadership positions that actually make a difference, not um, not places that are placeholders, so that you can say you have it. If you're not, uh, if you're not, then given the authority to actually make a difference inside the uh, make change inside the company. Hi, I'm Ashley Roque. I'm curious what you think of the chief diversity officer role. We were just talking about leadership positions and the last few years we've seen more companies appointing that position. And I'd love to know if you see it as a business imperative that shows a company's commitment to implementing change or if it kind of silos diversity and inclusion efforts instead of integrating them throughout a company's culture. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So... First and foremost, I think that any company's chief diversity officer should be their CEO. Um, um, That should be like that should be a line item on their compensation, their bonus package. Uh, That should be something that they're measured by. That doesn't mean that there should not be individuals that are specifically uh, tasked to bring diversity and inclusion. issues and challenges and opportunities to the table and have a concentrated effort, just like there's a concentrated effort in anything. There's a head of creative, there's a head of digital, there's a head of HR, there's a head of operations, there's the IT uh, head, there's a head of something for a specific thing. But I think when we're talking about something that should be implemented and spread throughout the entire organization, it should be like there should be a diversity and inclusion responsibility inside of just about every position, right? Understanding, however, where we are in terms of the challenges that exist in our workplaces um, from a racial perspective, from a uh, gender perspective, sexual preference, identity perspective, from a a harassment perspective, all these types of things, um, you should have individuals that are, are able to address uh, some of these issues and opportunities. Um, but if they're not empowered, like really, if they don't have the ability to really hire people, if they don't have a budget to really do real substantive programs, then kind of what's the point, right, um, of, of, of making it? So I, there are some companies whose chief diversity officers re- really are empowered to do great work uh, and there are some companies whose chief diversity officers really are a placeholder to say, we have this. 
Um, but you have to you have to dig deeper into the role. Do you have what influence do you have over the organization? Who do you report to? If you're at, if you're in the C-suite because you're a chief diversity officer, but you actually report into another C that's not the CEO, or you don't report into the board of directors or the shareholders, then what influence do you really actually have, right? So it, how how is it set up? You know, so you know, I, I think just being interrogating that a little bit more is important when considering if that if that role is a true change agent uh, and has the ability to be. I mean, there's some people, I know a lot of chief diversity officers and a lot of them feel handcuffed because they don't have the ability to implement change because of the way that they are set up in the organization. And, uh, and they were put in those roles or that role was created to pacify a hot topic versus really wanting to see substantive change. Yep, that's great insight, thank you. Great questions, you guys. Thank you, Ali, Seth, and Ashley, and thank you, Lincoln, so much for joining us today. Clearly, diversity and inclusion continues to evolve day by day, and I think we touched on the fact that the best brands are the ones that are most attuned to dynamic social issues, and again, those are changing day to day. So it's safe to say that everyone's DNI playbook will continue to need to add new plays. That's it for today. I'm your host, Candace Peterson, Global Managing Director of Brand and Consumer Marketing at Fleischman Hillard. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links mentioned in today's episodes. And a final shout out to our wonderful producer, Sam Hadi. Thanks, Sam. This has been a production of Fleischman Hillard, a global public relations and marketing agency serving the world's top brands. For more information about this podcast and to listen to previous episodes, visit FleischmannHillard.com forward slash brand marketing.